with uh, composer uh, Reinhold Hale, who has established a notable collaborative history with fellow composer uh, Johnny Klemek, as well as uh, director-composer Tom Tikva. Uh, the trio have worked on a number of notable films, such as Run, Lola, Run, uh, The International, and most recently Cloud Atlas, which earned them a Golden Globe nomination for Best Score. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. So you are part of a very notable team, a very a unique team that I don't, I've never seen uh, such a collaboration, I think, anywhere else in the industry. And I think that a director who also composes and works with uh, two composers is, uh, and they're all composers all together, is fascinating. How, with this relationship that you guys have together, all three of you, uh, what is the working process like at, uh, if you're on a film? Uh, do you split up duties? Do you uh, lock yourselves in a room together and force yourself to work together? Or does it change kind of? depending on the film. Yes, no, it, no, the, the, the method is pretty straightforward. It, it, it's based on Tom's schedule and Tom's philosophy about how to apply music to a film and how it's not applied after the fact. It actually grows uh, organically with the screenplay and with the edit of the film. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, of course, his, he, he, he's, also, he's always the author, like even with Cloud Atlas, uh, he, he is the co-writer of the screenplay together with the Wachowskis, he's also the co-director, he oversees every aspect of the movie so he can't focus completely on the music, that's right. what Johnny and I are for, uh, but of course he's also really deeply involved in the creation of the music and he is a very strong believer of writing the music before the film is even shot so that no um, other music needs to be used as temp music when the film gets edited. Wow. Um, that's, it, we're not the only ones who are thinking this way, but uh, we're sort of hoping that, that this will, you know, that, that the idea kind of spreads. I know that Hans Zimmer is doing this a lot. He's writing at least uh, suites. Right, right. James, James Newton Howard, I saw him yesterday, he was speaking, uh, and he said that's what he picked up from working with Hans on, on Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. He, he's doing this now also for, for his movies. He writes these 10, 12-minute suites of themes without having the picture. So while the picture is not even, when the picture is not even shot. The cool thing about it is the other, the third-party temp music is sort of eliminated. And not so much because that, would be, that, that music would be bad, but simply, um, you know, uh, our brains work in this way that if we've seen a piece of music with a, with a movie scene, with an image, a uh, hundred times or five hundred times as an editor or a director in the editorial, uh, the two become one. Our brain just, it's just burned into our memory as a, as a unit. And then listening to another piece of music to replace this temp is almost impossible. You have to then give it at least 10 listens to kind of compete with the 500 you had with the other piece of music. It's a totally normal phenomenon. Even if you are aware of it, you can't help it. Your brain just functions this way. So right. that's the one problem. The other problem is uh, an editor puts a piece of music uh, provisionary, temporarily, on his edit, and he cuts to it. Well, that means the pacing of the scene is very, very strongly determined by that temp music, whether he wants it or not. He would cut to this piece of music, so then he's cutting to another piece of music makes it even more difficult to replace that music with a new piece, or it actually also gives the composer uh, less possibilities. He, he will have to at least stick to the pacing of that original temp music piece, and to a degree with the character. So, I mean, while 
this will never, the phenomenon will never go away, and it actually also has its place. You know, there's, there's probably a million cases where doing it this very traditional way is exactly right. And, I, you know, I work with this situation all the time. It's totally fine. It's absolutely doable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, you know, for a filmmaker like Tom, who is a composer filmmaker, he comes, he, for him, the music cannot be just put on top like the, like the, um, the icing on the cake. Right. It's, it's part of the flavor. It's, it's uh, you know, it shapes the movie as much as it is being shaped by the movie. It's organically really molded into the whole thing. Um, it's the way to go. So we rewrite before, you know, when pretty much when the, uh, when the screenplay is at a decent stage, we get together and mostly we do this in Berlin because he's so involved in all the aspects of the filmmaking. If the film is produced ma- mainly in Berlin or in Germany, in the case of Perfume, it was Munich. Um, we go there, we write pieces with him, uh, we come back, we develop them a little bit, and then we actually had, in the case of Cloud Atlas, in 2011, we worked through, through June and July of 2011, and at the end of this already had an orchestra session, uh, and we pl- pl- uh, writing and recording all this music, and then came back to Los Angeles, and while he shot the movie, developed it into all these suites. So it's not just one suite or two, it was a whole bunch. We, we, we sent him three hours of music um, for the edit while he was shooting. And of course, you know that while a movie is being shot, uh, editors already put an assembly together. You know, it's mm-hmm. officially called the assembly, but of course the editors put their heart into it. They want to shape the movie too, so they, they do their version of the of the movie. In this case, it was actually two editors. That's why I'm saying editors. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a four-hour version of the movie ready when it wrapped. And then, uh, you know, we were still busy here with the, with the television series, but Tom said, you have to come. He asked me to actually come over to Berlin the moment when they started editing, because the three of them, you know, spent 12 hours in the editorial room uh, starting in January of 2012. Uh, to put this thing into a halfway manageable size. And, of course, it's, a, it's structurally a really complex uh, thing to make it accessible and uh, comprehensible. Right. So uh, they wanted, of, of course, that all the temp music that we had developed uh, wasn't going to cover all the bases. And there's no such thing as a music editor in the German movie industry, believe it or not. <laughs> so the composer does that himself. So I had to go to Berlin and uh, and become the music editor slash composer, arranger, and a team, Johnny and the rest of the team were supporting me from here. Um, over the internet, and I didn't even have an assistant because the TV series, of course, needed also our full attention, and uh, it was it was a hard stretch for for two months that I was in in Berlin and uh, working there without an assistant. But down the hallway from the editorial, where Lana and Andy Wachowski and Tom Tickler were shaping the movie, and I was trying to serve them, you know, with, with as much music as possible. And they set me deadlines because, of course, they had their internal little screenings. Right, right. So then, you know, at some point the whole team came to Berlin and, and it became a little easier for me. Uh, but, but then we still kind of, we had yet another recording session in May of 2012 and then worked all the way uh, through July. We brought it back here in July and, and, and did the final uh, 
um, music mix here, but everything else actually happened in these provisionary studios that were on the same uh, level as the editorial, and we had a room for the supervising sound editor. We had several rooms where the visual effects producers were, and it's just a, a very much a family experience. It's very unlike anything else that uh, uh, that you get to experience when you work on a movie, and it's actually lovely because you get that sense of community with the editors and the visual effects guys. Well, that's great. I mean, I love hearing that because. Uh just that way of working, I think, really reflects on the final product, and mm -hmm. uh, and it just connects, I think, more with the audience. At least with me, it does. And my favorite uh, director is Sergio Leone and and Ennio Marconi. They did the same thing. They would compose yeah. the music beforehand, and, and then the movie and the music really becomes this, you know, entity together. So it's uh, yeah. And I and I hear it from Hans Zimmer. You know, I saw a screening of Inception a few years ago. And right there after the screening and and he told that you know that he uh, and Christopher Nolan had like walks at the beach and they were already talking and he was sketching out things and giving them to him in the early stages before the movie got shot so uh, maybe not everybody do it does it as excessively as we do it but um, it makes perfect sense because you know don't be afraid of the music you know the, the music is going to be powerful if you're a filmmaker just uh, you know, so I have sometimes I have the feeling filmmakers are a little jealous because composer comes in at the end, you know, does his thing and has so much emotional impact. Right. Uh, and you go, yeah, but just use us, you know, <laughs> use us, talk to us, um, let us help you. Uh, we serve, and that's the thing. As a film composer, you are a servant of the project and of the film, and ultimately the filmmaker. Right. And and you're not tr there in order to elbow elbow anybody out. You want to use all your talent to help the film to be as good as it could possibly be. You know. Mm -hmm. So back, you know, last year when Cloud Atlas came out, there was a lot of buzz surrounding the release. And uh, um, in your own words, uh, how would you describe the film to someone who doesn't know anything about it? Yeah, this could, with my tendency of blabbering, this could fit a, <laughs> a, to a half-hour pitch. But let me try and do it as soon as as an exercise. Okay, uh -huh. I'm going to do it really briefly now. Um, it's based on a novel by David Mitchell. Um, the novel itself has an unusual structure because it has six different stories that happen in six different eras of um, as uh, of of history, starting in the mid 19th century, then another one in the 1930s, another one in in the early 70s one in present day, one in a dystopian future in 2144 in Seoul, and one in, tw in the 24th century after um, a, mm, yeah, the, the end of the world, so to speak, when the people have fallen back onto the level of the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. um, and not only are these different places, different eras, and different people that we are talking about, we are also having different kind of treatments of the English language, each one of those stories is a different genre of, of storytelling, of book writing, and it has a different way of language, different kind of a language kink, so to speak, in the English language, in each one of those. And the structure is, it tells the story, the first story, it stops in the middle of a sentence and you get really frustrated and you think that your book uh, is broken. Actually, lots of people brought the books back to the bookstore and complained. <laughs> and the second chapter starts and it jumps and it, it, it's an expose of a new story as if there has never been another story before. But at some point in that story, it relates to the first one because the, the book 
the, the journal of the first one shows up in the second story. Um, and the same thing happens over and over again. So you have the story of the two composers in 1930 and the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing that happened in 1850, which is the first story, is a little part of it. Um, then you jump into, it also gets interrupted frustratingly in the middle, and it jumps to 1973 in San Francisco, and it's a political thriller. And um, the Cloud Atlas Sextet, which is a piece that, that one of his composers in 1930 writes, becomes a, a little side subject matter of that. So every... Uh, every story relates to the other, although it's completely set somewhere differently and it's a completely different genre. Then it jumps to the present day. It's a screwball comedy in London. Um, and it jumps then to, to uh, the future, this dystopian future in Korea, where we have corporacy and no longer democracy. It's, uh, and, and then to the post-apocalyptic story. That's the one that's told in its entirety. And only then do you get the rest of story five four, three, two, and one. Mm. And when you're done reading the book, somehow the whole thing kind of merges in your brain. Obviously, that wasn't going to be the structure of the movie. Although I'm, I'm not sure if that's so obvious, but that's what Tom Tickford and the Wachowskis came, uh, came to at some point after reading the book over and over again, conceptualizing. They said they're going to have to lay out the, the six stories at the beginning, but then it's going to have to be cut between those t six different stories. And at the end, it has to merge into one. You will have to have the feeling as the moviegoer that you've seen one story, although it comes from all these different eras and that they are all connected. Uh, and there's a lot of love put into the structure, how the transitions happen. It's the framing, it's the, the way the actors show up in the different stories and so on and so on. There's a lot of economic um, uh, reason for it, of course, you have a certain ensemble uh, at your disposal, you don't have six ensembles, and so on and so on. Um, so, the music, of course, uh, trying to somehow do justice to that, but at the same time, uh, not separate the stories as much as actually become the glue of all this material and help uh, guide the viewer along in terms of the, the dramatic and emotional curves because they are actually synchronized. If you jump from a situation that is dangerous in one story to another story, you will be at a dangerous moment there. And that gives the music the chance to stay the same where everything else completely changes. And that kind of is a very, very important uh, aspect of keeping the, the, uh, the unity of, of the six stories into that one film that is Cloud Atlas. Mm -hmm. well, I, almost, I was almost answering my next question, but I was going to ask the goal, what was the goal musically for the film and how did you approach it? I mean, you're kind of trying to streamline everything together, but what was like, a, what, what would, when you first approached the project, what did you want the music, the goal to well, be? Yeah, the obvious thing I just already said because it's the, it has to be the glue uh, between between those stories and of course at the same time um, you're dealing with all these different um, eras so we set out to do both we set out to write music that is kind of uh, related to the different eras of the uh, of the stories of the book um, and at the same time, make them in a way that that they can be unified, that they can be used um, at any given time in the film. 
and I think we let we had to let go of really scoring properly every aspect of the film because the score, the style of the score would have to be jumping sometimes every few seconds and that didn't make any sense. So we, we understood that pretty much from the get-go that uh, there would be moments of the film that if you looked at them separately, if you look at like 20 seconds of the movie uh, by itself, you could potentially listen to the music and say that music doesn't make any sense with this film. But if you see the scene before and the scene after, you go like, oh, okay, I understand why the music is doing this because it's kind of keeping a momentum that's going in the other story that's currently not seen. So actually, the music also helps to keep the other stories alive while we're not seeing them, if if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I'm kind of, I hope I'm kind of making sense. So that <laughs> the other story of the momentum, maybe the drama, maybe the danger of the other story that we just left is still palpable. The music helps doing that. Music is actually the only thing that can do that. Um, so we just, uh, you know, we're trying not to stress out over it too much when we start writing because that just inhibits the creative process. So right. you just work from a place of fun and saying, wait, well, hey, this is awesome. Nobody's ever done this and we get to do it. All right. You know, it's scary, but let's jump right in and write stuff. And so we, you know, we wrote a whole bunch of themes. Uh, we struggled the most with the Cloud Atlas Sextet because it was uh, described in the book. And that's always difficult, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a piece of music described with words. It's coming out of this uh, the the time of the 1930s, um, where in the 1930s you have these two composers, and one of them writes this for the time pretty avant-garde uh, piece of chamber music, and uh, it's, it calls it Cloud at a Sextet, and then it goes on in the in the future eras to be forgotten and then you know uh, emerging again and then in the future actually becoming a ubiquitous piece of music that everybody on the planet knows uh, and that was kind of a hard combination of criteria to reconcile to to then write a piece of music out of uh, which is why at some point we just abandoned the, the avant-garde chamber music aspect of it and said, let's just write a beautiful melody that people can relate to and then orchestrate it in so many different ways. And that's what we did. It's, uh, it's omnipresent. The little melody is omnipresent everywhere. There are basically three main musical themes. One of them is the sextet, although the sextet as a piece doesn't show up very often as a complete composition. It shows only on a, up on a, on a few um, rare occasions uh, in the movie. But in terms of the melody, is almost in every cue. And the same goes for the Atlas March, which is sort of a big, you know, sort of epic, um, emotional piece that starts out very small and becomes bigger and bigger, sort of like the like the uh, bolero, um, is never in the film really uh, in, that, uh, in that arrangement except for in the end, it goes into the end title. It starts out the very last scene and then kind of dominates the end title. And then there's a third piece which is called, we called it um, Eternal Recurrence. Um, actually, Lana Wachowski called it like they called it that. We had a different title. We had the title Monosome and she said, well, that's that's more like eternal recurrence, and it had to do with the, the way they actually used it in the film. It's always used, it's a, sort of a mid-tempo, but pushing forward motoric kind of riff of bass notes. Um, 
that pops up whenever the story is propelled forward and uh, you know major changes occur in the lives of the people in all these stories and mm -hmm. it, it plays on montages where it jumps from one to the other and you have a voiceover and you have that piece going underneath. Um, so those are the three main elements and they pop up everywhere, everywhere. It's just insane how, how consistently the themes get uh, used and actually I'm, I'm kind of thrilled to look back at that we actually managed to finally do this because I was always complaining that we are writing too many themes and we're, instead of concentrating on less thematic core elements and, and using arrangement uh, to shape them and to serve the movie, we just wrote new pieces. You know, if you look at Perfume, the story of a murderer, it's a movie that wasn't very successful here, although it was very, very successful in other parts of the world. Uh, a big, epic movie with a big orchestral score and uh, about eight or nine main themes. They had a, a, maybe a little core motive of like a semitone, which you could say that's, that connects them all, but not mm -hmm. really. They're all like really different themes. And in this case, we... we we come away with like three main musical ideas that really shape the entire score. Uh, even if you look at a piece like, um, uh, what is it called? Edinburgh. It's like it's at the beginning of the film. It sounds uh -huh. like a classic, almost like a piece from an English art house movie. You have the musical structure of the Cloud Atlas Sextet. The melodic lines of the Cloud Atlas March, and then woven in, there's even the eternal recurrence is already in a very playful little piano melody. Um, uh, traveling to Edinburgh is, is the piece, you know, and all the three themes are already there. The same thing for the opening, which is also very much sort of a light-hearted kind of acoustic guitar with orchestra piece, where you go like this is supposed to be a sci-fi movie, why are they playing this kind of music? Well, because <laughs> it's not just a sci-fi movie. Um, and the, the material is already in there. So, I mean, even in the beginning, when you're still kind of orienting yourself, what, what the hell is going on here? You can't really put your finger on it, but all your thematic material is already at work. And then even when it goes to 1973, the source music in the background is a piece of rock music uh, like it could have been from the late 60s, early 70s. And the riff that the guitar and the bass uh, are playing is the Cloud Atlas Sextet melody. So uh, if you go searching and digging, you will see this, this thematic consistency uh, taken to great lengths. Uh, <laughs> but we were seeing how, with how much love the filmmakers were, were constructing their transitions from one uh, um, scene to the next, jumping from one story to, to the other story, to make them artfully beautiful and, and meaningful. And we said, we can't possibly not do that with the music. So even if it's like little piano in the background, um, at, at, at music, like at, music at Aurora House, where Cavendish goes and checks in, thinks it's a hotel, but it's actually some sort of an old people home where people are locked away by their families. Um, it's, it's actually the, a, a sort of a virtuoso version of a pianist, a pianist playing the Cloud Atlas Sextet in some sort of impressionist kind of way. So, um, you know, again, if you go digging, you will find those same melodies everywhere. There's hardly any third-party music in this film. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, it's amazing how much 
yeah, detail and intricate uh, levels and layers that you guys put into this, and it, it's it makes the listening experience so much richer. And but it's still not it's not a complex score in terms of emotions. I think it's it just it really gets absorbed. I think at least for me while listening to it. So well, that's, that's great to hear that, <laughs> that that people get that. I mean, obviously we wrote more music than what you have in the film. You know, maybe some pieces that pieces I really really liked that were more like <clears throat> brain children conceptualized at the very beginning uh, and then even developed to a nice degree, but then the film just didn't want them. You know, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's always the thing, of course, if you, if you proceed the way we do, you have to write more than you will end, uh, actually end up needing at the end of the day. You have to give some options and then you have to see what the filmmakers gravitate towards and then, of course, the film itself. The film itself is a is a, a sort of a living being in right. a way. I don't want to be too like scary or or <laughs> uh, or you know metaphysical about it, but you have the feeling that uh, a piece of film can reject a piece of music, you know, or just say, "This is good. I'm absorbing it," you know, and then it takes it. It All takes right. it or it rejects it, and it's of course the filmmaker himself or the, in this case the three filmmakers who uh, play a huge part in it but you can tell when you uh, like me for instance you know fulfill that role as a music editor you know which I actually love I love this because it kind of gives you so much perspective of like how music works with film and what doesn't work uh, you know when I sat there in January it tried three different main themes to be the opening title so like within a few days I was trying to construct the opening title three times in a completely different way and I was super surprised which of the three versions the, the filmmakers <laughs> ended up picking. I was like, really? <laughs> this one? Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's been so insightful uh, uh, sharing all this information um, and I really hope uh, people get a chance to find the film when it comes on home video. I know a lot of people didn't find it in theaters and it's always sad to see something this immense and uh, well-made kind of slip under the radar, but I hopefully people will give it a chance and when it comes out on Blu-ray. But to, uh, to wrap up, I always like to ask composers uh, this one question. Uh, if you had the opportunity to compose any film ever made with no disrespect to the original composer, which film would you choose? Uh, I think it would either be Alien or Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I could like really wholeheartedly go back to the Bernard Herrmann age and not completely, you know, just make it laughable. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and 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 this is already difficult with Alien because I think Goldsmith's score is just a timeless masterpiece. There, you know, I I couldn't possibly think of touching it. I'm just saying. That would be a movie I would have wanted to score for sure. Uh -huh. So it's one of my all-time favorite movies and one of my all-time favorite scores. Uh, it's just so, and then you know, just I mean, I like Ridley Scott's movies. I always do, um, but you know, this was a period of two, three years in which he just completely knocked it out of the park and opened up, uh, uh, you know, genres in a way that I just find is still. You know, it, it, still people don't follow him enough there. You know, but I think it it, it still opened up enough like good sci-fi, 
Um, and I have to say, I mean, as much as that might be super entertaining, but I, I just, I'm, I've grown a little bit tired of the of the alien race that tries to destroy us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this the, this dystopian future or those things like you know, alien, which you know, you can say alien is definitely something that finds itself even in, uh, you know, in, in James Cameron's work. You know, he was most certainly. I mean, obviously, he did he directed the second one. Absolutely, yeah. You know, so that. This is all good stuff, I think. This is, this, uh, you know, sci-fi needs to be relevant, needs to be relating to what we do. You know, right. this is what I liked about Cloud Atlas, you know, that it actually puts our, you know, current wrongdoing in perspective of what, what, uh, what this could lead to. And, you know, good, good sci-fi movies do that. I just, I just actually spoke with a composer. I just, he was my most recent interview that I posted. Uh, Kevin Ripple, he did the video game for aliens, uh, colonial marines, and he was talking about how he was debating with himself whether he was going to touch, you know, scores like Goldsmith and Horner, or try right. to try to make something brand new for himself. And he he had to do both. He had to reference a little bit of the material, but mm. definitely make it into a new thing. And I thought that that would have been a great journey for a composer that he took to to for do sure. that. Yeah, yeah. And I think on a on a video game. That's actually a cool way to deal with the subject matter without, uh, because it leaves you a little bit more freedom to, mm -hmm. to work with it. And, and people will not compare the video games easily with the, the actual movie. So I think that's, that's actually a really cool opportunity. I should check into that, although I'm not a, a big gamer. I get too addicted, and then I don't <laughs> work anymore, and I need to work. <laughs> uh, there's some great scores uh, in video games. I'm, I'm some, continuously wowed by how composers manage to... to to make some amazing work there, so yeah. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, Reinhold, for your time. Uh, it's been absolutely amazing to talk about all this and all the information you, you've shared. So hopefully, we get to do this uh, again sometime in the future. Sure. Yeah, you have my contact. <laughs> I'm <laughs> well, not going away. I'm, I'm here in Los Angeles. <laughs> okay. I'll be too. So if you. Oh, actually, you know, I just actually I forgot to do one. I forgot to to plug my website. I really uh, do. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's reinholdheil.com. Very simple. Uh, so <laughs> oh. there's some music there. You can you can check out some of the music that I've done, and I hope to update it soon. So we'll see.